Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14. Matthew, chapter 14, is where I would like to direct your attention this morning as uh, we're continuing to look at this Gospel together these many weeks. And I'm going to read from Matthew, chapter 4... Weeks, who am I kidding? Months. Uh, I'd like to... Years. Uh, Matthew 14, we're going to read from verses 1 through 12 uh, this morning. Matthew 14, verses 1 through 12. This is what uh, uh, Matthew recorded for us. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work with him. Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guest and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it, and then they went and told Jesus. This is a picture of Corporal Desmond Doss. Desmond Doss was a combat medic who enlisted in the uh, United States Army on April 1st, 1942 at Camp Lee, Virginia. Desmond Doss could have received a deferment. He is a, was a loyal member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. By conviction, he did not want to take up arms against enemies on a field of battle, but he wanted to be a medic, so he signed up particularly to serve in that role. There was a movie made about Desmond Doss and what he did in World War II. Um, I have heard good things about it. I do not recommend, based on everything I have heard, watching it with your children. Uh, read careful reviews before you watch this violent uh, war movie. But Desmond Doss's story uh, still should be told. He is the only non-combatant in the United States Army to ever have received the Medal of Honor. And it happened during the Battle of Okinawa, which happened from March 26th, 26th until July 2nd, 1945. Um, During uh, a particular uh, two or three days of this three-month-long battle, Doss's unit was charged with uh, climbing a ridge called Hacksaw Ridge. There's a picture of it. Climbing the ridge and taking a plateau above the top of it that um, uh, was uh, uh, the Japanese, where the Japanese were. And the first day of battle went well. They climbed the ridge. They, they attacked heavy, heavy casualties on both sides on the first day. But the, uh, the U.S. Army managed to take the plateau and set up a reasonably good position until the Japanese counterattack on the next day. And he came and drove the uh, American soldiers off the plateau and back down the ridge. As Desmond Doss was getting ready to evacuate himself, he started to hear the cries of wounded soldiers on the plateau, and he decided to go and rescue them. Under enemy fire, he crawled across the battlefield, one by one, finding a man and bringing him back, lowering him down the ridge, 
and then going back to get another one and another one and another one. For hours, uh, he did that uh, under enemy fire all day long. Um, he was awarded the Medal of Honor, as I've said, and the citation says that during these, this battle and a couple other uh, times during the Battle of Okinawa, Doss was responsible through his bravery for saving between 50 and 100 uh, American soldiers. Uh, pacifism and courage are not oxymorons. They can go together. But Doss's story does raise an interesting question who in their right mind would step onto a battlefield without a weapon? Or at least without the same sort of weapons that the enemy has. Doss's fellow soldiers knew this was, was insane. They, they uh, during training, would often make fun of him or uh, bully him be because of his refusal to participate in riflery training. If you're going to step on a battlefield, you should go with the same weapons, at least, that your enemy has, hopefully more weapons, right? If they have guns, you take guns. If they have tanks, you take tanks. If they have artillery, you take artillery. You should go. Who in their right mind would go otherwise? If you're a follower of Jesus, now is the time for you to raise your hand and say, I would. I want to talk about why that's true today from this passage and the Gospel of Matthew in general. One of the goals that Matthew had for his book, and you notice this is a repeated theme, uh, maybe it's not quite as obvious because we, we take it in small pieces, but over and over again, Matthew sets his mind to preparing his readers to live in a hostile world, a world where their values and views are not shared or appreciated Jesus was preparing his disciples to do this, and Matthew records this to prepare us to do this. Jesus did not train his people to fight fire with fire, just the opposite, right? You know these verses from Matthew 5, Matthew 5, 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Or Matthew 5.43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Who in their right mind would live this way? If someone insults you, insult them back. If someone hits you, hit them back. If someone shoots at you, shoot back. Except Jesus said no. Matthew 5 is not the only place in the Bible, where, in the gospel, where this topic comes up. It matters to Jesus. It matters to Jesus that we know how to live in a hostile world without being hostile ourselves. That we know how to be maligned without being mean, to be rejected but not retaliate, to be hated but not hateful in return. Matthew 14 is a passage that helps us with this, helps us think through some of the dynamics here. There are not specifics in this passage about how to respond. That's not the emphasis. The emphasis, rather, is on the conditions in which we live. And I want to walk through it with you under three headings. We're going to talk, first of all, about John's story. Then we're going to talk about Jesus' story. And then we're going to talk about your story. What happened to John? How it relates to Jesus? and then how it applies to you. That's my plan for the morning. Let's begin by talking about John's story. 
We have seen John the Baptist. We've been with John the Baptist a few times already as we've walked through the Gospel of Matthew. He's the forerunner. He's the one prophesied in the Old Testament who would come and prepare the way for the Lord Jesus, for the Messiah to come. He's the first one who, in Matthew chapter 3, preaches, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in Matthew 4, very early in the book, Matthew 4, verse 12, John is arrested. And here's the story in the text, the account of what happened to John, why he was arrested, and what the end of his imprisonment was. It's a flashback scene where we're thinking back to an event that had already happened in the text. He's been arrested by Herod the Tetrarch. We'll have to talk about who he is in just a minute. Uh, He was arrested by Herod the Tetrarch because John spoke out against Herod's marriage. Now, before we get to that, even in the first couple verses, we can think about Herod's, uh, John Carson says, he calls it Herod's eclectic theology. Herod was a superstitious, not very faithful Jew. Uh, So he hears reports, the text says, about Jesus. He hears reports and he is interested, intrigued, and a little bit afraid because his conclusion is that John the Baptist has come back to life and it's because he has been resurrected, he has miraculous powers. And that, uh, there's nothing in Jewish theology or faith that would teach you to expect that a prophet would be resurrected with miraculous powers. That has nothing to do with his faith. Uh, It all is born in superstition, and it makes him afraid. It makes him afraid because he knows how John died. If the person you executed is suddenly back with miraculous powers, you might be afraid, right? Well, uh, here's, here's the story. Matthew backs up. Herod, the Tetrarch, had married Herodias. This was... Uh, his second marriage and her second marriage too. Her first marriage was one of Herod, Herod the Tetrarch's brothers. His name was Philip. Now, I want to tell you about Herod's family tree here. And uh, this is a family tree with not enough forks in it, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, Steve Henson, after the first service, told me that we should think not of Herod's family tree, but of Herod's family wreath. So, um, Here's the story. I was going to make a slide that would show it, but I don't have the computer skills to draw this out. Uh, There's Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the first Herod that we hear about in the Bible. Herod the Great is the king who was the king of the Jews when Jesus was born. And a couple of years after Herod the Great died, uh, after, sorry, after Jesus was born, Herod the Great died. So this is not that same Herod. This is one of his sons. Before Herod the Great died, he divided his territory into three parts, and he divided among his sons. Herod had a lot of sons. He had killed a few of them, but some of them were alive still. And uh, he divided his territory into three parts. The largest territory he gave to his son Archelaus, Herod Archelaus, and, and he, Herod gave him the title Ethnarch. So there's king, and then there's ethnarch. And then the other two territories he divided, he gave to two of his sons, Herod Antipas, this Herod, and Herod Philip, and he gave them both uh, uh, the, uh, the title tetrarch. So uh, like in the military, there's rank, there's royal ranks, there's king, then ethnarch, then tetrarch. Wouldn't you think that if your title was Tetrarch that you had one-fourth of the territory? No, it couldn't be that convenient. You have one-third of the territory Herod Antipas does. 
Um, now, Herod was ruling when he, uh, his sister-in-law caught his attention. Her name was Herodias. Herodias was the, the, the daughter of another of Herod's sons. So now we're up to four sons that we, we've identified here. There's Archelaus the Ethnarch, Antipas the Tetrarch, Philip the Tetrarch, and the other son, the father of Herodias. And um, she, when she grew up, she married another one of Herod's sons, also named Philip. So there's two Philips, and uh, uh, Herodias first married the other Philip, her uncle. So she married her uncle, and then she and this man had a child, a daughter, her name is Salome, and then Herodias divorced this Philip and married this Herod in the text. So the woman who was his niece and his sister-in-law became his wife. Do you got that? It's clear, right? Just, just to make things worse, Salome, when she grew up, married another of Herod the Great's sons, the sixth one we haven't mentioned yet. So on the day she married, she became the aunt and sister-in-law to her mother. So reunions must have been a great time for this family. Herodias married Herod, this Herod, and John the Baptist stood up and said, no, no, you must not have her. Leviticus 18.16 says you must not marry your brother's wife. You should not be married to Herodias. Now, we should think about this for a minute because in verse 4 it says, John had been saying, this is a repeated thing that he is announcing, had been saying, and the text says, to him. I'm not sure if John the Baptist is actually in Herod's palace preaching to him. Uh, it seems more likely to me that Herod, that John the Baptist, from where he uh, was in the wilderness preaching, said, Herod, you must not, you must not marry Herodias. You must not live with Herodias as your wife. He was publicly preaching. And this raises questions to me about what preachers should say to politicians. Is this warrant for me in the text for me to say from this pulpit on a Sunday morning, Mr. President, you must not, and you can fill in the blank with all kinds of things, right? Mr. President, you must not. Uh, Paul didn't seem to preach that way. The Apostle Paul didn't seem to preach or write that way, but John certainly did. He is calling out the king, the Tetrarch, for his marriage. I often quote from uh, Frederick Bruner or uh, refer to things I have learned from him. He is a, a thoughtful writer about the Gospel of Matthew. Here's, I'm going to quote from him uh, this morning. Here's something he said about John the Baptist that I thought was helpful. John the Baptist gets into trouble because he meddles morally and socially in the life of a king. He is an evangelist who dares to be a prophet. Concerned essentially for souls, he loses his life by defending the sanctity of marriage. Preaching mainly at the riverside, his life is cut short because he insists on preaching in front of the capital too. John the Baptist is a fearless exponent of the will of God to all who will listen to him. John does not temper his words in the presence of the mighty. There is an integrity about John that reminds us of the law of God itself. John, like the law, is mainly an accuser, but his office of accusing is good and holy and right. Holy, good, and right. Herod arrested him. He wanted to execute him, but Herod was a coward. 
He's afraid of the crowd who thought he was a prophet, verse 5 says. So he just put him in prison until his birthday. Herod's birthday party, probably more like a bachelor party than a birthday party. When I was a kid growing up in Perry, New York, there was a family around the street that uh, were practicing Jehovah's Witnesses, and they do not uh, celebrate birthdays in that faith tradition. And they explained to me that one of the reasons they do not is because the only birthday celebration in the Bible ended very badly, namely this one. So uh, Herod throws a birthday party and Salome dances. Now, what kind of dance do you suppose it was? Your assumption is it was probably quite a sensual dance. And that seems to be a reasonable assumption. This will bring um, more disgust to you, perhaps. Verse 11 says, His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl. The girl, that word girl there refers to a child between the ages of 12 and 14. Dancing centrally for her stepfather, who was also her uncle. So, uh, Herod is so moved by this, this is moral perversion. Herod is, Herod is so moved by this that he makes her a promise, I'll give you anything you want. She's a little child. She goes to her mother. Her mother says, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. This is a very strange story. It's a strange story for a number of reasons. Uh, these are the only two women in all of the Gospels who are faithless women. Every other woman in the Gospels is someone who comes to Jesus for a miracle or believes in him or follows him faithfully. Uh, men deny Jesus. Men betray Jesus. Uh, men reject Jesus. But there are women at the foot of the cross and women who go to the tomb and women who believe and women who support Jesus' ministry. And here are the only two. This is the exception. These are the only two women named in the Gospels who uh, are faithless. I wonder if you recognize this story, if the story has this account, if it has the, the ring of familiarity to you. Think back, think way back, think way back to your Sunday school days with flannel graph. And if you don't know what flannel graph is, ask your grandmother and she'll tell you. That reminds me of a story that's totally unrelated to this text, but I'm going to tell you it because it's cool and it's about one of God's good people. So uh, years ago, I heard a missionary, his name was Ed Lewis, and Ed Lewis, uh, during the Cold War, was a missionary in Austria, and he often, as part of his ministry, would cross uh, into Eastern uh, Europe, into communist territories, where he would very secretly meet with Christians in churches, and uh, he would take material to them as he could, and for the... Uh, Sunday school teachers behind the Iron Curtain, he wanted to take flannel graph Sunday school material, uh, but how do you explain big sheets of flannel? So he covered his seats with them, made seat covers out of the flannel, crossed the border, and then when he got there, he took it off and gave it to the teachers, and they used it as flannel graph. If you've ever taught twos and threes in the 1980s, you know how awesome a story that is. So anyway, flannel graph, way back those days, Sunday school, do you remember? John the Baptist in the Gospel of Matthew is back to the text. You remember John the Baptist in the, in the Gospel of Matthew is often like Elijah the prophet. Uh, he's compared to Elijah the prophet. He dresses like Elijah the prophet. He preaches like Elijah the prophet. He comes in the spirit of Elijah the prophet. John the Baptist is the new and better Elijah the prophet. And do you remember Elijah himself had trouble with the king and his wife? Wicked King Ahab 
and his wife Jezebel. And wicked King Ahab, um, he, just like Herod, he was wicked but a coward. And Jezebel, just like Herodias, is wicked and not afraid of anything. And here is another scene. Here's a scene in Matthew where we have the new Elijah uh, dealing with another wicked king and his wicked queen. Now, that will be important. We'll come back to that and talk about that in a minute. But do you remember how Matthew said that a disciple, when he is fully trained, brings out of the storeroom new and old treasures? Matthew is doing that here. He's reminding us of the patterns that God has put in the Hebrew Scriptures so that when Jesus appears, we say, ah, this is part of the plan. This has always been part of the plan. Here it is again. Uh, John, uh, Herod uh, goes, sends for John, and John is beheaded, and his head is brought in on a platter, which is a macabre scene. I think it speaks to Herodias. She did not intend to eat John's head, but it speaks to her appetites, her twisted and broken appetites. One wonders if they ever used that platter again, or if it was brought in front of Herod, if he recognized it and thought about it. Another aside, somewhat unrelated to the text, kind of. Years ago, I was in a meeting of uh, missionaries who serve in East Asia, and they were talking about the difficulties of translating the text and dealing with the culture that you have to deal with when you translate the text. And there was one particular uh, missionary who was there who said, in my tribe, in the tribe in which I work, when there is war between tribes, the warriors, uh, when they win, they take the bodies of the, the, the chief warriors, the bodies of the other tribe, and they bring them home and they set them before the oldest woman in the tribe, and she is the honored one, and she, as a token of victory, eats the bodies of the, the vanquished foes. And he said, how do you suppose I'm supposed to translate this passage of Scripture where John the Baptist's head is brought on a platter to Herodias? That might take a footnote or two in the translation, right? Hmm. Here's the ignoble end of John the Baptist, the forerunner. The one Jesus said was the greatest person born up until the time of Jesus, John the Baptist. And this is how he dies. At the hands of a sensual king, moved by a perverted dance from his stepdaughter, uh, and at the bequest of a wicked queen. This is how he dies. Is this what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Are you sure this is a good idea to follow Jesus? If this what's happened, what happens to God's great prophet? Are you sure that we really want to do this? Now, let's move on from John's story to talk about Jesus' story. Jesus' story. I mentioned how this is an unusual account because of the faithless women. It's also an unusual account in the Gospels because it's the only episode in the Gospels where Jesus himself is not at the center of the uh, action. There's two elements, though, that I want you to see that are related to Jesus. The first one is we're going to talk about Elijah again. I want you to think about Elijah, Elisha, and Jesus. Elijah, Elisha, and Jesus. Remember Elijah? So Elijah dealt with a wicked king and his, his wicked queen, just like John the Baptist is tangling here with a wicked king and his wicked queen. Do you remember Elijah had a successor, the man who came and prophesied after Elijah? Elijah, in a sense, introduced him to the nation of Israel. That man's name was Elisha. 
And do you know one of Elisha's first miracles? He did more miracles than Elijah. Elisha's first miracles was feeding a hundred men with a mere 20 loaves of bread. You're thinking 20 loaves of bread to feed 100 guys, that seems reasonable. I mean, that's five guys to a loaf, right? Remember, we're talking like pita bread. That's, that would be a loaf of bread, not enough to feed 100 hungry men. And one of the first miracles that Elisha the prophet does is he feeds 100 hungry men with only 20 loaves. Look at 2 Kings chapter 4. Here's where it's recorded, 2 Kings 4. How can I set this before a hundred men, his servant asked. But Elisha answered, give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord said. They will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. Do you know the miracle that Matthew records right after the story of Elijah, of John and Herod and Herodias? The story immediately after this, which we'll come to in a couple weeks, Lord willing, is Jesus feeding the 5,000. John is the new and better Elijah. Jesus is the new and better Elisha. All those years in Sunday school should be paying off right now, right? Now, uh, the second thing that I want you to see here, not just about Elijah and Elisha uh, and Jesus, is I want you to see how this story, this account here too, is a foretaste of Jesus' future. A foretaste of Jesus' future. It prepares us as readers for the death of Jesus. We're reading the text. Here John dies. And there are multiple parallels between John's death here and Jesus' death at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. It's the same Herod that's involved, the same sort of injustice. John didn't have any trials. Jesus had six of them, and they were all a sham. And then there's even phrasing in Matthew 14, 5. Herod wants to kill John, but he's afraid too because uh, the, the people considered him a prophet. In Matthew 21, 46, it says the exact same thing about Jesus. The chief priests wanted to arrest Jesus, but they were afraid to because the people considered him a prophet. Same language. At the end of this account, John is dead. And toward the end of Matthew, Jesus is dead. Are you sure that following Jesus is a good idea? Are you sure that we really want to do this? Now let's talk third about your story. Your story. This is not just a preview of Jesus' death here in Matthew 14. Uh, this is a foretaste of what we can expect to in this world. And there's two pieces that I want to set before you for your consideration about the context in which we live and serve as we think about what to expect. First, notice in this passage the preeminence of persecuting government. Persecuting government. This is an official act of the official head of the government, the king, to behead God's prophet. I read this passage and I think to myself, why wasn't Herod more afraid of God than he was of the people? He should have been more afraid of God, right? I mean, he was afraid enough of the people that he didn't execute John, but he wasn't afraid enough of God that he ended his illegitimate marriage to Herodias. And on the birthday party, he, he didn't want to execute John, but he was afraid of the crowd. He was afraid of the, the guests at the party, and thus he had John executed. Why isn't, John, uh, why isn't Herod more afraid of God than he is of the people and their opinion of him? 
Here's a politician who cares more about polls than about profits. The Bible tells us to think about government in a couple of different ways. On the one hand, Romans 13 says, uh, Paul instructs us that the government are, they are ministers of justice. God has appointed the government to enact justice in the earth and the world so that we should, and we should, because of that, submit to their authority. So we should follow their, the rules. On the other hand, though, the Bible pretty consistently tells us about governments that have a terrible track record when it comes to enacting justice and honoring God. There are many more examples of terrible governments in the Bible than there are of good governments in the Bible. Think, for example, of, well, look with me at, at Psalm 2, 1 to 3. This is kind of a, a, a central passage for this condition of government before God. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Herod is an example of Psalm 2, a king in rebellion against God. There's Herod, there's Ahab, there's Nebuchadnezzar, there's the king of Tyre, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on of these kings and queens in rebellion against God. This should help us uh, learn to put government in its place, not to think of it too highly or not to think of it too lowly either. The government is not neither our savior nor is it always satanic. There are times that it helps and times that it hurts. The government is quite helpful when you turn in a piece of paper to them that shows that you gave money to the church and the government says, we'll give you a deduction on your taxes. Thank you, that's helpful. The government hurts when it sues you because you will not bake a cake for a same. Uh, the government is helpful when it defends your right of free speech to preach the gospel on a college campus. That's helpful. Then there are times, though, that the government has turned an, a blind eye when racists put a bomb in the basement of an African-American church. If we were a congregation in China or Iran or a congregation of Baptists 200 years ago or a, a congregation of African-American brothers and sisters, uh, we, would, we would be able to pick up this passage and it would make a lot more sense and it, we would already have uh, places in our mind where we would categorize it and put it. We already have, they would already have categories for this type of government. I want to be a grateful citizen, but I want to be a shrewd citizen. Persecuting government. Second in this passage that describes the reality that describes the context in which we live and serve, uh, public unrighteousness. Public unrighteousness. Here is the account in Matthew chapter 14 of a prophet who is jailed and executed for speaking out about the sanctity of marriage. Silly John. Silly John. <laughs> Don't you know, John, those laws that Moses gave? I mean, they're 1,500 years old. Surely we've moved past them, silly John. Um, a couple, uh, at our last congregational meeting, I made reference to the fact that our church has position statements on several contemporary issues, uh, 
three or four of them, and one of them is a statement about human sexuality. I want to read a few paragraphs from it, four or five paragraphs. Um, this is a, a statement that the elders have written and prepared and approved. We did this several years ago. We're actually thinking of revising it, not to change the content of it, but to make it sharper than it is. Um, but uh, here is a summary position of what we teach and what we believe the Bible teaches about human sexuality. Let me read it to you. Regarding the issue of human sexuality, it is the position of the pastors and the board of elders of Grace Baptist Church of Millersville that sexual intimacy is a good gift from God to be received and enjoyed by one man and one woman within covenant marriage. All other forms of sexual intimacy, including adultery, fornication, polygamy, incest, pedophilia, and bisexual or homosexual behavior are sinful. We believe that God made humans in his image as male or female. Gender is not merely a social construct, but is an expression of God's good design. Human beings should embrace their birth gender and pursue biblical manhood or womanhood. We believe that because of the fall, all human beings are sexually broken and face a variety of illegitimate temptations and desires. Within the body of Christ, those who struggle with same-sex attraction are to be encouraged and loved, not ostracized or disdained. The process of sanctification for those facing homosexual temptation parallels the path of overcoming heterosexual temptation. We believe that the church should minister to those who practice homosexual, transgender, or bisexual behavior by admonishing them to repent of their sin. We believe that Jesus Christ offers forgiveness, and through him, by the enablement of the Spirit, the power of sin is broken. As fellow believers, we admonish and encourage one another to resist temptation and pursue personal sexual holiness. We believe that all persons have been made in God's image and that responding to sexual immorality in any of its forms with mockery, fear, hatred, or violence is also sinful and should be rejected by followers of Christ. At the same time, to remain silent in areas in which the Bible clearly speaks dishonors God and endangers others. We believe that any attempt to legitimize alternative sexual lifestyles through legislative or executive action is unworthy of Christian support and should be opposed. As these alternative lifestyles become acceptable within the culture, followers of Christ must remain committed to the goodness of human sexuality as God intended, even when it invites criticism or persecution. So it will not be long before statements like this are officially classified as hate speech. Let's take a page from John the Baptist, shall we? We'll take a page from John the Baptist and speak the truth in a world that has gone mad. How do we respond? That's not the main point of Matthew chapter 14, but again, I'll repeat Jesus. Matthew 5, 43, he said, You have heard that it was said, love your enemy. Sorry, I did the same thing at 8.30. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Matthew 5, 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted John. The same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
1871, Congress passed a law. They called it the Ku Klux Klan Act. And the purpose of this law was to give teeth to federal enforcement of the 14th Amendment in former slave states. And uh, Joseph Rainey was a member of the House of Representatives at the time. He was the first African-American man uh, elected to the House of Representatives. Look what he said when the law was passed in 1871. We have open and frank hearts towards those who are our former oppressors and taskmasters. We foster no enmity now, and we desire to foster none for their acts in the past to us, nor to the government we love so well. That is a radical statement. It's a radical statement, it, it, it's a radical statement in the year 2021, because nowadays, if you now or ever have said anything that does not measure up to current views and values, you should not be forgiven. You should receive nothing but enmity. You should lose your job and you should lose your reputation. You should be canceled. This statement is so countercultural. And it's pretty gospelish, too. Smell Jesus around this quotation from Joseph Rainey? Let's talk about forgiveness. We preach a message of forgiveness. We believe in canceling. We believe in canceled sin is what we believe in. We know about being hated, but not being hateful, because that is how God has treated us in Christ Jesus. We hated him, but he, for the sake of love, has sent his son to be the Savior, who was condemned in our place for our sins and rose again. And we enter the world as gospel people, gospel-shaped people. The world doesn't need more fire it needs people who know about mercy and forgiveness and about life. The sexual revolution is going to leave in its wake broken people, grievously broken people. And they need men and women who know of the gospel of forgiveness and know the gospel of new life. Having been loved this way by God, we now go and love our enemies. This is why it's the gospel that teaches us to be hated but never hateful. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your mercy to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, as, even as we read this uh, foreshadowing, this foretaste of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus in Matthew and think about the own, our own pressures and temptations that we will face. Lord, we come before you asking that you would grant us courage in this broken, mad world. Lord, um, teach us to be men and women of truth and mercy, righteousness and forgiveness. Uh, we pray that you would uh, remind us ever more deeply and significantly of the grace and kindness that we have received through the Lord Jesus that we might then extend it to those who are around us. Keep us, Lord, from being mean and angry and bitter and self-righteous representatives of you. 
Lord, we do not have it within us to love our enemies and to turn the other cheek and to bless those who persecute us. It is beyond our ability. We are thankful to you for the Holy Spirit. We are mindful, even as we think of these things, that uh, in light of the freedoms that we have in our own country, there are brothers and sisters that we have around the world who suffer grievously under persecuting governments. Have mercy, Lord, have mercy, we pray. We ask these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.